welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. He's back. Hello, everyone. It's me again, Kevin, married and freshly returned from honeymoon. My wife and I had a magical wedding and a great holiday. We've had an unforgettable three weeks. I returned simultaneously elated and somber. Elated because Liz really did a fabulous job. This show is no easy lift, and Liz had three big weeks of cases. I mean, seven Ninth Circuit decisions last week? Come on, guys. Well done, Liz. Well done. Your jokes were excellently corny. But my joy is tempered by the humanitarian and immigration tragedy unfolding in Afghanistan. For me, this is the stuff I thought was relegated to history, Vietnam, Cambodia, and I'm saddened beyond belief. Us immigration attorneys have a unique role to play in all this, and I know from Facebook that many of you, particularly those with ties to the region, are engaged in the fight of your lives right now. Know that we see you, support you, and are honored by you. Hang in there, guys. Hang in there. Six cases this week, three from the ever-verbose ninth. Episode 70, here we come. First up is Munya v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 25th, 2021. Going to start out with a trio of Ninth Circuit wins before concluding with a trio of asylum-type losses. This case is about asylum and credibility. Ms. Munya is from Cameroon, a country which, as described by the panel, is currently undergoing a conflict between English-speaking separatist regions and French-speaking security forces, all of whom have committed atrocities. Ms. Munya is from the English-speaking region, although considers a local language and not English or French as her, quote, mother tongue, end quote. In immigration court, she testified that she was detained by security forces and asked about her ties to the Anglophone separatists, specifically a group called the SCNC. 
Security forces detained her, kicked her, slapped, and beat her, and she was placed in a cell with 30 other people, denied food and water, and kept there for 15 hours. Then, during the night, she was placed on a truck with other detainees for transport to another prison, and along the way, was raped in the bush, on the side of the road twice with other female detainees by the officers. She managed to escape into the bush after the second rape, and traveled all night by foot to reach a phone in the town of Bafia, from which she called her husband two hours away. He drove and picked her up, where afterwards she was admitted to a hospital and treated for her wounds, including for rape-related wounds. Police in Cameroon searched for her and a court summons was issued. In immigration court, Ms. Munya provided the IJ with a copy of the warrant, declaring her a suspected member of the SCNC. Her father was even held for three days in an effort to get her. She made her way to Ecuador and over a three-month period worked her way up to the San Diego border, where she was placed in ICE detention. Her family in Cameroon sent her a bunch of corroborating documents, but the IJ denied her claim. Seems like DHS did a good job of impeaching Miss Munya's telling of the rape incident based on known distances between locations in Cameroon. It appears that Google Maps didn't match up with her timeline of events. Then again, Miss Munya explained how horrific her experience was, and so she couldn't remember exact times or distances and may have estimated in court. Also, apparently, Ms. Munya told the asylum officer at the border that she didn't know whether a friend that the Cameroonian officers had questioned her about was actually part of the SCNC, but she later testified in immigration court that she knew that the friend was SCNC. Ms. Munya conceded this discrepancy and said that she was scared when she spoke to the asylum officer at the border without an attorney in detention after the three-month journey to the U.S. The IJ identified a few more discrepancies and noted that Ms. Munya, quote, had not shown any emotion particularly during her testimony about the rape, end quote. The IJ issued an adverse credibility finding and the BIA affirmed, but the BIA, quote, gave little to no weight, end quote, to some of the inconsistencies identified by the IJ, which the BIA deemed just too inconsequential. The Ninth Circuit reversed and remanded. Adverse credibility law and the requirements for relying on inconsistencies vary throughout the circuits, and in my opinion, there often seems to be a case to support many arguments, because there are just so many cases. The Ninth Circuit is no exception, and the inconsistency requirements are, ironically, not always consistent. In this case, the main identified inconsistency was how far the truck had traveled before the rape. Ms. Munya's declaration said that the truck had traveled only 4-5 to five kilometers before the rape, making it then impossible for her to walk through the night to Bafia afterwards. But she later testified that actually it might have been 4 or 5 hours, explaining the discrepancy to be a result of the trauma suffered. And the Ninth Circuit agreed, in a great quote for asylum credibility appeals, stating that, quote, it is reasonable and plausible that the trauma caused by multiple physical and sexual assaults would impair Ms. Munya's focus at the time on peripheral matters and therefore on her memory of those matters, end quote. Indeed, scholars recognize that sexual assault can expressly result in, quote, difficulty remembering events, end quote. Rather than considering the psychological effects of rape, it appears, based on the Ninth Circuit's footnotes in this decision, that the IJ was impermissibly cherry-picking the record a bit. Quote, Our sense is that she was badgering Miss Munya instead of seeking the truth, 
End quote. Eesh. As to the other inconsistencies and bases for denial, the Ninth Circuit rejected them. So did the BIA, actually, too, at least with the IJ's demeanor holding, for as the Ninth Circuit states, and I guess the BIA, quote, no one can be reasonably expected to have the same emotional state every time she recounts a traumatic event in her life, especially on two different occasions, months apart, and under different circumstances, end quote. The Ninth Circuit further held that the IJ erred in discounting Ms. Munya's corroborating evidence. Indeed, quote, unlike in many immigration cases we see, the affidavits Ms. Munya filed were of high quality, end quote. Take what you can get, everyone. The fact that the affiants did not submit ID cards, and the fact that the notarizing attorney was Ms. Munya's cousin, were no reason to discount the affidavits, particularly as the IJ did not demand the ID cards until the final hearing had already begun. Congratulations, Ronald D. Ritchie, for petitioner. Bit more. The Ninth Circuit concludes by throwing down, stating, quote, Ms. Munya's case concerns us. From our reading of the record, the IJ seemed determined to pick every nit she could find. Besides airing procedurally, the IJ discounted probative evidence on flimsy grounds and displayed a dubious understanding of how rape survivors ought to act, end quote. Now, as I often mention, I used to work for IJs, and I don't like calling them out. But like with that Fifth Circuit decision discussed on episode 64 of the podcast, look up who this IJ was if you can, and if it's relevant to your case. Because as the Ninth Circuit states, quote, we note that this particular IJ's flawed reasoning on so many issues undercuts our confidence that she was uniquely qualified to assess the truth of Ms. Munya's testimony as a whole and that her findings deserve deference, end quote. And that is Munya v. Garland. Next up is Orozco Lopez et al. v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on August 25th, 2021. So as the et al. implies, this case is actually about two separate non-citizens, Mr. Orozco Lopez and Mr. Gonzalez Martinez. But it presents the same issue about reasonable fear interviews. Judge Callahan authored the decision and then concurred with her decision. Mr. Orozco Lopez was ordered removed, was physically removed, unlawfully re-entered the U.S., and was caught. DHS reinstated his prior order of removal, Mr. Orozco Lopez expressed a fear of return to his country of Guatemala, and so, DHS provided him with a reasonable fear interview. If he had passed, he would have been placed in withholding-only proceedings before an immigration judge, where he could apply for withholding of removal under the INA and the Convention Against Torture, and for cat deferral. But DHS said he did not pass his interview. Mr. Orozco Lopez appealed that no-reasonable-fear finding to an immigration judge, pro se, without an attorney, and the IJ affirmed DHS's no-reasonable-fear finding. Before the Ninth Circuit, Mr. Orozco Lopez argued that under the INA, he was entitled to an attorney at no expense to the U.S. government at his reasonable fear appeal before the IJ, and that he was denied that right here. The Ninth Circuit agreed and remanded. Reinstatement and reasonable fear interviews are always a bit complicated to me. 
The regulations expressly provide non-citizens with the right to counsel at their initial interview before DHS, but are silent as to the right on appeal to an IJ when DHS makes a no reasonable fear finding. And that appeal hearing, by the way, must occur within 10 days. Now, while the reasonable fear appeals are supposed to be expedited by nature and, quote, were not envisioned to be full evidentiary hearings, end quote, and while the regulations and statutes are silent on the express issue of right to counsel, another portion of the INA states that, quote, in any removal proceedings before an immigration judge, non-citizens shall have the privilege of being represented, at no expense to the government, by counsel of their choosing, end quote. That, according to the court, meant that the question was as follows. Are appeals of no reasonable fear findings following reinstatement of a final order of removal under the category of any removal proceedings? If so, a non-citizen has a right to counsel. And the Ninth Circuit says they are. Basically, use of the word any under the statute connotes an intent for broad application of the attorney representation provision for non-citizens, and that, quote, by saying any removal proceedings, Congress signaled that there is more than one kind of removal proceeding, end quote. Appeals of no reasonable fear findings meet that category. And the Ninth Circuit so held despite making expressly clear in prior decisions that reinstatement itself is separate from removal proceedings. Doesn't matter. Quote, Congress intended that non-citizens have an entitlement to counsel at every possible flavor of removal proceedings before an IJ, end quote. And appeals of no reasonable fear findings cuts it. Plus, any doubts about such things must be resolved in favor of the non-citizen. Love it. So he's got the right, but that doesn't necessarily result in relief. But here, Mr. Rascal Lopez was deprived of that right because, quote, the IJ did not raise the possibility of legal representation at all, end quote, during the reasonable fear appeal hearing. And where counsel is denied, no showing of prejudice is required, at least in the Ninth Circuit. All right. The Ninth Circuit held, however, as to Mr. Gonzalez Martinez, who was in a materially similar procedural posture, that he had not been deprived of his statutory right to counsel, because in his case, the IJ actually addressed the counsel issue on appeal, and denied Mr. Gonzalez Martinez's request for a continuance to obtain an attorney, noting that the law requires that the hearing occur within 10 days and that it had already been a week. So a bit ironically, and according to the court, in denying the continuance, the IJ protected Mr. Gonzalez Martinez's statutory right to counsel as compared to Mr. Orozco Lopez, who was not alerted of his right to counsel at all. Worth noting, though, the conclusion for Mr. Gonzalez Martinez would likely be different if, at the time the asylum officer had made that first no reasonable fear finding, the officer had failed to, quote, inform the non-citizen of the opportunity to have counsel, end quote, which basically means providing the list of pro bono attorneys. As I read this decision, under such circumstances where the non-citizen isn't even given a pro bono list, the IJ would violate the statutory right to counsel on no reasonable fear appeal, absent a continuance, and notwithstanding that 10-day mandate. Congratulations Chinakya A. Sethi and Allison V. Zazchak for Mr. Orozco Lopez. Two more things.
As is often discussed, framing of arguments matters so much. Here's an interesting standard of review distinction for you circuit nerds out there. Quote, An IJ's decision not to continue a hearing is reviewed for abuse of discretion. But whether an IJ's denial of a continuance violated a petitioner's statutory right to counsel is a question of law, which we reviewed de novo. End quote. Well articulated, counsel. And to answer that Easter egg that I planted at the top of the case while at the same time acknowledging that planting eggs of any sort makes no sense, it appears that Judge Callahan concurred with her own decision here to essentially say that she would like the Ninth Circuit to revisit its rule that denials of the right to counsel in any context are per se reversible error without need of showing prejudice. But she cannot do so without going in bonk. And that is Orozco Lopez et al. v. Garland. Rounding out the ninth, Afanador v. Garland, published on August 27, 2021. This decision is about crimes involving moral turpitude. Judge Van Dyke dissented, referring to the majority opinion and ones like it as, quote, the Ninth Circuit's abysmal and indefensible immigration precedents, which are the gifts that keep on taking, end quote. Let's begin. Mr. Afanador is a lawful permanent resident from Colombia, but he's been convicted multiple times of violating California Penal Code Section 314.1, which criminalizes the willful and lewd exposing of private parts in any public space, Quote, where there are persons to be offended or annoyed thereby. End quote. DHS initiated removal proceedings in 2015, alleging that Mr. Afanador's two convictions for this constituted two or more crimes involving moral turpitude, not arising out of a single scheme, under INA Section 237A2AII, thereby making him removable. The IJ and the BIA agreed, holding that the issue is directly controlled by the BIA's 2013 decision in matter of Cortez Medina, which held that this very statute is a CIMT. In this case, therefore, Mr. Afan adores. The IJ and the BIA ruled, as the BIA had previously in a published decision in Cortez Medina, that Cortez Medina controls instead of the Ninth Circuit's directly contrary 2010 decision in Nunez v. Holder. And the BIA can make that holding and trump a circuit if, under the Supreme Court's Brand X decision, the statute that it's interpreting is truly ambiguous and the BIA's interpretation is reasonable. So we've got a classic admin law throwdown, everyone. Hold on to your apple juice. In this decision, the Ninth Circuit said, you know what, fine. Matter of Cortez Medina trumps Nunez. Cal Penal Code Section 314.1 is a CIMT. And really, the Ninth Circuit had to issue that ruling after its 2019 decision in Batanzos v. Barr. Remember Barr? But the Ninth Circuit then held in this decision that the BIA cannot apply a matter of Cortez Medina retroactively. That is, to convictions that predate matter of Cortez Medina. Why does that matter? because only one of Mr. Afanador's conviction postdates the BIA's 2013 Cortez Medina decision. Therefore, the Ninth Circuit held that the BIA erred in finding Mr. Afanador removable, because an LPR is removable for only two CIMTs, other than in circumstances not present here. Here's why the Ninth Circuit held that matter of Cortez Medina can't be applied 
retroactively. First off, there's a whole bunch of case law out there indicating that agency rules and congressional legislation is generally only applied prospectively and not to past actions, unless expressly authorized to have retroactive effect by Congress. Not really fair to punish people for things that they did in the past that weren't illegal or improper when they did it, that sort of thing. With that general principle in mind, courts, quote, determine whether a rule's retroactive effect is permissible by engaging in a case-by-case analysis to balance a regulated party's interest in being able to rely on the terms of a rule as it is written against an agency's interest in retroactive application of an adjudicatory decision, end quote. Put another way, like so much law, retroactivity is a balancing test, and in the Ninth Circuit, it involves five factors. Give the decision a read for more about those factors to make your retroactivity argument, if you have it. Here, the Ninth Circuit held that matter of Cortes Medina can't be applied retroactively because the decision flat-out changed the law, at least in the Ninth Circuit, and it attached a new legal consequence to Mr. Afanador's prior conduct. It made him removable all of a sudden. All of that is a significant burden to Mr. Afanador naturally, and the government didn't show in this case a sufficient countervailing interest to allow it to apply the new rule retroactively. The majority went on to argue with and counter Judge Van Dyke's dissent a lot, which I don't see reason to expand upon here. Congratulations, Saad Ahmad, for petitioner. One more thing. If you're wondering why the Nunez court held in 2010 that the indecent exposure statute in California is not a CIMT, it's because, quote, nude dancers at bars and partially exposed purveyors of sexual insults have been convicted under Section 314.1, meaning there is a realistic probability, not a theoretical possibility, that California would apply the indecent exposure statute to conduct that falls outside the generic definition of moral turpitude. End quote. The BIA disagreed with that in Cortez Medina, holding that in California, the conviction always requires as an element, quote, lewd intent, end quote, and lewdness is morally turpitudinous. Such are the wonderful distinctions of CIMT case law. And that is Afanador v. Garland. Moving along, we have Singh v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on August 25, 2021. This case is about asylum and reasonable relocation. Mr. Singh is a Sikh individual from India who applied for asylum in immigration court. See, in 2013, he joined the Shiromani Akali Dal Amritsar political party also known as Akali Dalman, working in the state of Punjab to set up tents and serve food. That political party, quote, supports the establishment of an independent state of Khalistan and the release of Sikh prisoners from Indian jails, end quote. In 2014, he was twice contacted by members of the rival Akali Dalbadal political party, who threatened to kill Mr. Singh if he didn't sell drugs for that political party. When he refused the second time, five individuals beat him until he lost consciousness. He was hospitalized but did not flee to another part of India because, as he testified, quote, when he rented a home or applied for a job, he would need to provide identification, end quote, 
and that would allow him to be tracked down. The IJ and then the BIA held that indeed, Mr. Singh had suffered past persecution, meaning that he warranted asylum unless, as relevant here, DHS could meet its burden to establish that he could reasonably relocate within India. The IJ and the BIA then held that DHS had established that Mr. Singh could reasonably relocate, relying on the Department of State, Canadian Government, and UK Home Office reports to make that finding. So those documents are fair game, by the way, Second Circuit practitioners. On petition for review, the Second Circuit upheld the BIA. First, it held that even if Mr. Singh's persecutors in the Akali Dalbada party are indeed aligned with the ruling political party in India, that doesn't make his persecutors the government, and so he doesn't enjoy the regulatory presumption that relocation is not reasonable. Check out Carvey Wilkinson, though, published by the Ninth Circuit and discussed on episode 40 of the podcast for the counter-argument, and with India specifically to boot. From Carr, quote, When a petitioner suffers persecution at the hands of a major political party, both during and after its rise to power from a minority voting bloc in the legislature to the head of government, the source of the persecution is the government itself. Just saying. Anyway, back to Mr. Singh. The Second Circuit doesn't seem to fully review the agency's decision that he could reasonably relocate, but instead held that Mr. Singh hadn't shown that the agency was wrong, as he had pointed merely to, quote, general country condition evidence, end quote, in India, and not to facts particular to him. But remember, everyone, that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. DHS similarly cannot point to generalized country condition evidence to meet its initial burden to establish that relocation is reasonable, or for that matter, that a fundamental change of circumstances had occurred when a non-citizen has suffered past persecution. The Second Circuit also upheld the finding that relocation was reasonable, as, quote, There are 1.2 billion people, including 19 million Sikhs, living in India, and that Indian citizens, Sikhs in particular, do not face difficulties relocating within the country. A decision expressly intended by the court to preclude Sikh asylum claims in the Second Circuit. One more thing. In a footnote, of course, the Second Circuit panel made known that it might not agree with, and in any event, refuse to extend, its very recent separate Singh v. Garland decision discussed four weeks ago on episode 66 of the podcast. The Mr. Singh in that case had also claimed asylum based on his membership in the same political party as the Mr. Singh here. But really, according to this panel, that Second Circuit decision was about adverse credibility and standards of review. The Second Circuit had held there that such findings must be, quote, supported by reasonable, substantial, and probative evidence in the record when considered as a whole, end quote. But according to this panel here, there is no basis to extend that favorable standard of review to the review of other factual findings in immigration cases outside of adverse credibility. Therefore, and taking both things together, the Second Circuit will uphold all other agency fact findings besides adverse credibility if, quote, any reasonable adjudicator could have found as the agency did, end quote. Follow along if you can. And that is Singh v. Garland.
Next is Mumad v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on August 27, 2021. This decision is about particularly serious crimes. Mr. Mumad is an ethnic Oromo from Ethiopia. As a child, Mr. Mumad's quote, father helped arm the Oromo Liberation Front. In turn, Tigrayan soldiers took Mr. Mumad's father into custody to question him about his dissident activities. Mr. Mumad never heard from him again. End quote. The Tigrayan soldiers also killed two of Mr. Mamad's brothers and burned down his home, forcing Mr. Mamad to jump out of the second-story window and leading to a two-week coma. All of this happened when he was a child, and he came to the U.S. as an orphan and refugee at 14 years old. Perhaps unsurprisingly, all of this led Mr. Mamad to develop PTSD. He got into some juvenile trouble. Specifically, as a minor, he sexually assaulted a minor, requiring, quote, predatory offender registration duties, end quote, in Minnesota. When he failed to register, years later as an adult, he was sentenced to a year and a day in prison. DHS initiated removal proceedings. In immigration court, he applied for asylum and related relief. He did, after all, come to the U.S. as a refugee and the IJ granted withholding of removal. But seven years later, DHS brought him back before an IJ to terminate the withholding of removal grant, no small thing, citing to a bunch of other criminal convictions that he had obtained in the interim, including his again failing to register, felony theft, and simple robbery. Back in proceedings, the IJ held that the robbery in particular, considering the violent actions used, constituted a particularly serious crime, meaning that Mr. Mumad lost his withholding of removal. The IJ then denied the last remaining protection available, Convention Against Torture Deferral, because of the changed conditions in Ethiopia that had occurred in the interim, including that the current Prime Minister is an ethnic Oromo. On petition for review to the Eighth Circuit, Mr. Mamad didn't argue that the conviction or convictions weren't particularly serious crimes, but rather that the whole concept of a particularly serious crime is unconstitutionally vague. Shoot for the fences. And actually, it turned out to be an excellent, although ultimately unsuccessful, argument. As we've discussed before, there are per se meaning in all instances without further analysis required, particularly serious crimes. And there are non-per se particularly serious crimes. For asylum purposes, a per se particularly serious crime is any aggravated felony. For withholding of removal, a per se particularly serious crime is an aggravated felony or aggravated felonies for which the non-citizen has served at least five years in prison. This case concerns non-per se particularly serious crimes, which under BIA and Eighth Circuit precedent, IJs and the BIA can determine on a case-by-case basis by considering certain factors, including the statute of conviction and the actual facts of a case. To argue that the non-per se particularly serious crime catch-all provision is unconstitutionally vague, Mr. Mamad pointed to recent Supreme Court decisions, including Sessions v. DeMaia, that have found the crime of violence statutes under immigration law and the Armed Career Criminal Act unconstitutionally void for vagueness. But here, the Eighth Circuit rejected that analogy, holding that those statutes were more ambiguous than the particularly serious crime catch-all statute at issue here. See, as the Supreme Court has made clear, 
vague statutes and laws can be unconstitutional, but only when they're effectively, quote, standardless, end quote. Here, the Eighth Circuit held that there were indeed at least two limits to the immigration particularly serious crime definition that make it not unconstitutionally vague. First, the statute uses the phrase, quote, particularly serious, end quote, which requires that the crime, quote, be excessive in quality or extent to some unusual degree, end quote. And second, under the text of the statute, the crime must be such that the non-citizen can be considered a, quote, danger to the community, end quote. But be warned, under BIA and circuit precedent, this latter requirement does not require an independent finding that the non-citizen in question is actually dangerous. So the Eighth Circuit rejected the void for vagueness challenge, and it also rejected Mr. Mamad's argument that the particularly serious crime concept violated U.S. treaty obligations. And all of this aligns with the 2018 Ninth Circuit decision in Guerrero v. Whitaker. Finally, the Eighth Circuit also upheld the IJ and BIA's denial of cat deferral without much analysis. So, while Mr. Mumad lost, I appreciate the standards and limits placed on the particularly serious crime definition. I'll be using them going forward. And that is Mumad v. Garland. Finally, we have Murugan v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on August 24, 2021. This case is about asylum and related relief. Judge Martin, who I believe is retiring from the bench soon to focus on criminal justice reform, dissented. Mr. Murugan is from Sri Lanka, and in immigration court claimed he was persecuted due to his being an ethnic Tamil. He testified that he was arrested by the Sri Lankan army in 2017, that he was detained and not harmed and released, but that later that year, he was arrested again. This time, the army tied him to a chair and interrogated him for four days about his potential ties to the Tamil Tiger insurgency group. Soldiers slapped his face, kicked his thigh, and led him to believe that he'd be killed. His parents and neighbors eventually secured his release, and the army threatened him so as for him not to speak about what had happened. He was hospitalized for two days. He was detained a third time later that year for about six hours, and while unharmed, he was threatened to be brought to the, quote, fourth floor, end quote, where people were known to be tortured. He fled the country and entered the U.S. unlawfully through funds obtained by his parents through selling their land and jewelry. He was placed in removal proceedings and applied for asylum and related relief before an immigration judge. The IJ denied and the BIA affirmed, holding that Mr. Muragan had not suffered harm that rose to the level of past persecution, that the record did not show that Tamils are persecuted or tortured in Sri Lanka, or that in any event, he was targeted on account of his being a Tamil. The 11th Circuit affirmed. First it held that Mr. Murugan, quote, was detained three times, and during the longer four-day detention, was tied to a chair, slapped, and kicked. These harms, while serious, do not rise to the level of past persecution, end quote. The 11th Circuit did imply that an IJ must also consider mental harm in its totality analysis, so remember that, but then held that the IJ sufficiently considered that harm as well here. 
Next, the court held that Mr. Morgan had neither established that he would be singled out in Sri Lanka or that there exists a pattern and practice of persecution against Tamils there. The 11th Circuit noted that it addressed a similar Sri Lankan claim last year in its Ling Soran decision, discussed on episode 16 of the podcast, and that Mr. Murugan had not produced evidence compelling a contrary conclusion. Finally, the 11th Circuit majority agreed that to the extent Mr. Murugan was harmed, it wasn't because he was a Tamil or because of any imputed and related political opinion, but rather based on a suspicion that he knew Tamil Tiger members and because he had assisted refugees in Sri Lanka. The 11th Circuit then refused to consider a variety of intelligent arguments made by Mr. Murugan on petition for review because, it appears, he did not make them before the BIA. Let's see what dissenting Judge Martin has to say. There's certainly a difference of opinion here. Quote, The majority opinion gives no more consideration to Mr. Murgan's claims and individualized evidence than did the BIA and the immigration judge. That is to say, not much consideration at all. End quote. Namely, the fact that things changed a lot for Tamils when, in October 2018, quote, the former president, who had been accused of authorizing war crimes and other human rights abuses against Tamils, blindsided political observers and suddenly returned as prime minister, end quote. Judge Martin also provides pages of writing on the history of the Sri Lankan government's treatment of Tamils in recent years and that country's brutal conflict, so review and cite to it in your Sri Lankan cases. Judge Martin then concludes by stating, in a quote that seems particularly relevant in light of the situation unfolding in Afghanistan, that, quote, When a dictator with a well-documented history of persecuting an ethnic group returns to power, surely our law does not require a member of that group wait to again experience persecution before he can claim asylum, end quote. And that is Murugan, the U.S. Attorney General. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Immigration Review.